Hello, this is Nick Whitney, and welcome back to All You Need to Know About European History. This 18th episode focuses on the early and middle years of the 19th century and the revolutionary changes it brought to Europe, both industrial and political. Let's start with the industrial. In 1845, the young Friedrich Engels, back home in Germany after a spell managing his father's factory in Manchester, England, published The Condition of the Working Class in England, a grim account of social and economic conditions in the new conurbation. The poverty, squalor and disease which Engels documented were the bleaker effects of the Industrial Revolution, that transformative process which was changing the basis of England's economy from agriculture to industry and manufacturing. A concomitant effect was mass migration from the countryside to the new towns and cities. The social impact was huge, and so too were the political consequences, though in markedly slower time. Engels published the Communist Manifesto, co-authored with his friend Karl Marx in 1848, but it was twenty years or more before anyone took much notice of it. We have already noted some key technological advances towards the end of the 18th century, which enabled Britain to lead the world in this transformation, including James Watt's steam engine and the mechanisation of spinning and weaving. Centuries-old cottage industries were transplanted into William Blake's dark satanic mills. Accompanying advances in coal and iron production were further enablers, as was abundant capital, generated by decades of investment in empire and looking for lucrative new outlets. Advances in agriculture were also key. Seed drills, threshing machines, soil improvement, reducing the demand for rural labour and feeding the voracious appetites of the new cities. Populations were booming. The 19th century saw a near tripling of Europe's population to some 400 million souls. Yet despite Dr Malthus's gloomy predictions, food supply, much of course imported, generally managed to keep up. Grim episodes such as the Irish potato famine of the 1840s apart. For Britain... The Napoleonic Wars, and in particular the 1806 trade embargo on Britain, were a further spur to domestic production. Much as today, disruption of international trade heightened interest in shortening supply chains and bringing manufacturing home. Britain's comparative advantage was strengthened by relative political stability and by having a captive imperial market into which to sell its wares, beginning with textiles. Local production was inevitably eclipsed. Not for nothing would Mahatma Gandhi adopt the emblem of the spinning wheel, as seen on India's flag today, for his campaign for independence from Britain. Transport links were vital. Britain's road network improved in the 18th century with turnpike trusts established for the main highways and the invention of tarmac surfacing but shifting coal and manufactured products in serious quantities demanded water transport, inspired by a visit to the Canal du Midi, built by Louis XIV in the 17th century. A local duke built his own canal in 1765 to ship his estate's coal to Manchester. There followed 
an explosion of canal building, much of it by immigrant Irish labour, enabling the exponential growth of coal, iron, textiles and ceramics production. Canal mania only faded when overtaken by railway mania. The Stockton and Darlington Railway opened in 1825 as the first public railway to use steam locomotives, primarily to haul coal but also for passengers. The Scottish engineer George Stevenson was the man responsible. His example inspired another engineering genius, Isambard Kingdom Brunel, who had cut his teeth on tunnelling and bridge-building, but went on to build the railway from London to Bristol, and subsequently pioneered iron, screw-driven steamships. The vision and ambition of these men was matched only by the appetite of investors, who set up a rash of railway companies which Parliament was happy to endow with unprecedented powers of compulsory purchase. That first Stockton-Darlington railway was held up by the local earl's concern for his fox coverts. But in 1852, when the scheme was hatched to push a railway into the heart of London by Trafalgar Square, the new viaduct was driven within 20 metres of Southwark Cathedral. This upending of England's economic and social structures produced winners and losers. Adam Smith may conveniently have articulated a first exposition of trickle-down economics, but not for the first or last time in history. The early 19th century demonstrated that the winners will generally try to increase their winnings at the expense of the losers, unless the latter find ways to make their superior numbers count. Since property qualifications ensured that the franchise was unavailable to the poor, this left the option of combining into unions, a tactic naturally contested by the bulk of proprietors, but gradually advanced by actions such as those of the toll-puddle martyrs, farm labourers who combined to resist pay cuts and were promptly sentenced to deportation to Australia in 1834 only to be pardoned two years later after a public outcry. For the rampant capitalism and immiseration of the poor was gradually tempered by social reform, often led by public-spirited adherents of the non-established churches, such as Quakers and Methodists, who had sharpened their campaigning skills in the debates on the abolition of slavery. Often such figures were themselves well-to-do, it was a philanthropic owner who sponsored the 1819 legislation to ban the use of children younger than nine in cotton mills. Another landmark was the 1846 repeal of the Corn Laws, which had kept the grain barons happy through heavy tariffs on imports. As the century advanced, public health also greatly improved, partly thanks to medical scientific advance partly to realisation that a healthy workforce meant healthier profits, and partly to social conscience. It helped that the appalling condition of the country's water and sewage infrastructure was literally thrust under Parliament's nose by the Great Stink of 1858, when hot weather turned the air over the Thames into a reeking miasma. Political progress was slower. In the early 1830s, Hopes of serious reform were briefly raised by a new king and the arrival of a Whig or Liberal government, but were frustrated when only cautious expansion of the franchise followed. 
In response, the Chartist movement took off in the new industrial centres of England and Wales. For the next two decades, Chartists campaigned for such utopian reforms as secret ballots, redrawing of constituencies to reflect actual population sizes, and even universal adult male franchise. Women, of course, would have to wait until the 20th century to be included in democracy anywhere in Europe. First Finland in 1906, France, incredibly, not till 1945. The Chartists largely avoided violence. Their main weapon was the petition, with millions of signatures collected and presented to Parliament. Naturally, they got a stiff ignoring. After 20 years, the movement petered out, and real political reform had to wait for the latter years of the century. The suffragettes took due note, and concluded, like some climate protesters today, that sometimes only direct action will precipitate political change. Where Britain's industrial revolution led the way, northern European neighbours in due course followed, first in the coalfields and production centres of France, Belgium and Germany. But it was not until the close of the 19th century that a united Germany, forging ahead in chemical and steel production, would come to rival Britain's industrial might. Meanwhile, as scientists and engineers unravelled the secrets of electricity and its generation and transmission, the Industrial Revolution acquired a sort of second wind, with telegraphy, lighting and electric engines transforming the world. The century closed out with the invention of the internal combustion engine, which would confirm the positions of Germany and the United States as the industrial titans of the new century. For most of the 19th century, however, Britain, with its empire and dominant industries, was global top dog. Vanquishers of Napoleon, vanguards of the new industrial age. No wonder the British were rapidly developing that sense of exceptionalism that remains, alas, so prominent in the national psychology even to this day. 200 years ago, that sense could only be reinforced as Britons looked across the Channel and compared their own political stability with the popular unrest building across Europe as monarchs tried to turn back the clock after the Napoleonic upheavals. The first serious bout of renewed turbulence in Europe occurred in 1830. The latest, indeed last, Bourbon King of France, Charles X, was a reactionary spendthrift and dissolved the Chamber of Deputies when it tried to restrain him. So it was back to the streets for three glorious days of insurrection in Paris. It is this episode that Delacroix's painting of a bare-breasted liberty atop the barricades commemorates. Charles was forced to abdicate and was replaced by Louis-Philippe, a distant relative from the junior Orléans branch of the royal house, who promised to be a more modest constitutional monarch. Weeks later, the people of Brussels took their cue. The Congress of Vienna had made the latest William of Orange King of the Netherlands, itself a, a retrograde title for the confederal Dutch, and had added Flanders and Wallonia to his realm. These provinces had suffered economically ever since their northern neighbours had blocked the port of Antwerp as they promoted Amsterdam. While the new Dutch Protestant Republic flourished, 
Flanders and Wallonia, predominantly Catholic, had languished under first Spanish and then Austrian control. Now, a Dutch Protestant king, quickly acquiring regal habits, was too much to bear. And so Belgium came into being, its neutrality guaranteed by France and Britain. The liberal-stroke nationalist contagion spread, with revolutionary outbreaks in the Italian states and Switzerland, and a brief civil war in Portugal. The Poles, whose truncated territories had been made a sort of Russian protectorate by Vienna, attempted rebellion, were crushed and effectively absorbed into the Russian Empire. The concert of Europe had been shaken, but survived. 1830 was, however, only a curtain-raiser for 1848, the year of revolutions. Events kicked off in Palermo, where the Sicilians rose against their Spanish Bourbon rulers. Thus challenged, the Parisians returned to the barricades to overthrow Louis-Philippe and initiate the Second Republic under a government led by Bonaparte's nephew, Louis-Napoleon. Within weeks, angry crowds were on the streets of pretty much every European capital, demanding political and economic reform or violent insurrection. The causes of their discontent were multifarious, as was their composition. Impoverished workers, revolutionary students, anti-imperial nationalists, frustrated new bourgeois. Spreading from Britain, the Industrial Revolution had layered massive economic and social upheaval onto underlying resentment of inflexible, incompetent and repressive old regimes. Perhaps the final straw was hunger. The mid-1840s saw widespread crop failures, compounded by the potato blight that wrought particular havoc in Ireland, but contributed to starvation across Europe. It's hard not to see parallels between 1848 and 2012, the year of the Arab Spring, starting with the role of new mass media, a burgeoning popular press in the one case, Facebook in the other, in spreading the revolutionary impulse from country to country. Both events were expressions of a perfect storm of varied resentments. Both achieved astonishing early success, with autocrats either unseated or scrambling to offer concessions and promising to mend their ways. And in both cases, the forces of reaction showed themselves remarkably tenacious, biding their time as the revolutionary coalitions began to splinter and choosing their moments to strike back. In 1848... The Hungarian independence movement was the most significant of the rash of nationalist uprisings that shook the Austrian Empire and seemed set fair to achieve its goal. The following year, 300,000 Russian troops helped the Austrian Emperor to crush it. In France, the Second Republic lasted only three years until Louis-Napoleon engineered a coup and declared himself the Emperor Napoleon III, in 1852. At first glance, then, it might seem that 1848 and 2012 were equally failures. Yet not all the gains of 1848 were lost. Serfdom was abolished in the Austrian Empire, and even Russia followed suit in 1861. The conversion of kings in the Netherlands and Denmark into constitutional monarchs restrained by elected assemblies was permanent. Social reformers pressed on, as did advocates of more properly representative elections. 
the new forces of nationalism, whether in Germany, Italy or Hungary, were not to be gainsaid. And if the 1848 revolutionaries had lacked an overarching ideology, their successors would find one in that originally neglected publication of that same year, the Communist Manifesto. In little more than half a century, the Gotterdammerung of the First World War would put paid to the last of Europe's emperors. Meanwhile, any illusion that, after the turmoil of 1848, the concert of Europe might be readily resumed, was soon dispelled by the renewal of great power conflict. Since the defeat of Napoleon, the British and French had harboured concerns about the growing power of Russia. These worries were not assuaged by the ruthlessness with which Tsar Nicholas I had crushed the Hungarian uprising, and turned to alarm as he picked up the historic Russian agenda of pushing south at the expense of the Ottoman Turks, looking to control the Black Sea and the Straits to the Mediterranean. Once diplomacy was exhausted, the 1853-56 Crimean War ensued, a dismal display of military incompetence and gratuitous slaughter. Fortunately for the Allies, Britain, France and the Ottoman Empire, the timely death of Tsar Nicholas brought the more pliable Alexander II to the throne, ready to concede defeat. And at least there were enduring positives for military medical services, after Florence Nightingale's efforts exposed the appalling lack of official provision for the injured and sick, and indeed for knitwear. The cardigan and the balaclava originated in the campaign. Britain's ally in the Crimean adventure was the new Emperor of the French. Until himself deposed in 1871... Napoleon III pursued a liberal and popular domestic agenda, investing hugely in the modernisation of French industry and agriculture. He had Paris remade, as we know it today, with wide boulevards and uniform facades. He operated as a wrecking ball on the international scene as well. One outcome of the Congress of Vienna had been to beef up the Kingdom of Sardinia. The point about Sardinia was that it was where the kingly title came from. But the kingdom's centre of gravity was in the southern Alps. Piedmont on the Italian side, Savoy and Nice on the French. Given the centuries-old French propensity to attack the Habsburgs through northern Italy, the Congress of Vienna decided to reconstitute Sardinia as a buffer state, throwing in Genoa for good measure. Obviously, the new emperor of the French could not be happy with an arrangement which undid the first emperor's work in incorporating Savoy into France. So he devised a cunning plan, in cahoots with King Victor Emmanuel of Sardinia. He would help the king take northern Italy off the Austrians in exchange for the return of Savoy and Nice to France. Victor Emmanuel agreed, because he and his chief minister Cavour had an altogether wider aim in mind nothing less than the unification of Italy as an integrated nation-state. The plan worked. Two battles in 1859, near the towns of Magenta and Solferino, drove the Austrians out of Lombardy. Incidentally, the aftermath of Solferino was witnessed by a passing Swiss businessman, Henri Dunant, who was appalled by the carnage and became the driving force behind the formation of the International Committee of the Red Cross and the first Geneva Convention on Humanitarian Behaviour in War. 
The following year, Giuseppe Garibaldi, veteran of the Italian revolutions of 1848 and recently reinstated as a Piedmontese general, led his expedition of the 1000, a.k.a. Garibaldi's red shirts, to land in Sicily and ignite a revolt against the Spanish Bourbons. The Risorgimento proceeded at a cracking pace. Garibaldi crossed to southern Italy and pushed up through Naples to meet his king sweeping down from Lombardy. On 17 March 1861, back in Turin, Victor Emmanuel was declared king of the United Kingdom of Italy. Rome was the kingdom's designated capital, but the Pope, supported by a French garrison, refused to cede the city for a further decade. By then, as we shall shortly see, the French had more pressing concerns, and Rome finally achieved its destiny as Italy's capital in 1871. And so ended more than 1,000 years of papal temporal power. Italy was not the only part of Europe where a new nation-state was struggling to be born. The urge to create a united Germany was bound to follow the demise of the Holy Roman Empire, but the loose German confederation of 39 states under Austrian chairmanship created by the Congress of Vienna was no powerhouse of integration. It was the revolutions of 1848 that provided the decisive impulse, channelling not just the same political and economic demands as elsewhere across Europe, but rocking Berlin, Vienna and other German state capitals with the widespread call for national unification. Regimes in both Prussia and Austria were deeply shaken. The Prussian king was even panicked into sporting the revolutionary colours of red, black and gold. For a brief period, a new German National Assembly, comprising representatives of all states of the Confederation variously elected, convened in Frankfurt to start work on a new constitution for a united Germany. But the storm passed. Across Central Europe, the old authorities restored their grip and withdrew their promises of decisive reform. But German unification was now an inevitability, and King Wilhelm I, King of Prussia from 1861 to 88, and his chief minister, Otto von Bismarck, were the men to make sure it happened under Prussian leadership. In 1862, Bismarck famously declared that the great questions of the time will not be resolved by speeches and majority decisions. That was the great mistake of 1848 and 1849, but by iron and blood. True to his word, he then provoked three short decisive wars against Denmark, Austria, and finally France. The war against Denmark, over the disputed border territories of Schleswig and Holstein, was a useful workout for the new Prussian army that Bismarck was busy creating. The legal position over this conflict was complex. The British statesman Lord Palmerston is reputed to have said, only three people have ever really understood this Schleswig-Holstein business. The Prince Consort, he meant Queen Victoria's German husband Albert, who is dead, a German professor, who has gone mad, and I, who have forgotten all about it. Complex or not, the Austrians joined Bismarck in this adventure, and a subsequent argument over division of the spoils furnished all the excuse Prussia needed to turn its fire on its erstwhile ally. This German war of brothers 
lasted little more than a month in the summer of 1866, at the end of which Prussia had definitively replaced Austria as the leader of the emerging German nation. The Austrian-led German Confederation was dissolved and replaced by a Prussian-led North German Confederation, from which Austria and Bavaria and other southern German states which had backed Vienna in the recent war were excluded. The North German Confederation, however, was only a staging post on the way to realisation of the full Prussian ambition. Only France remained as a potential obstacle, Unfortunately, Napoleon III was ill and gullible and could be manoeuvred into starting hostilities himself. The Franco-Prussian War was, for practical purposes, over almost before it had begun, with the crushing defeat of French forces at Sedan in September 1870. Back in Paris, a government of national resistance declared the return of the Republic, the Third. Prussian forces laid siege to the French capital... When starvation failed to do the trick, Bismarck urged bombardment. As resistance cracked, King Wilhelm I convened the German states at Versailles. Bavaria and the other southerners were now happy to be included. On 18 January 1871, the birth of a unified German nation as the Second Reich and the Kaiser Wilhelm was declared in the Hall of Mirrors. French surrender followed, and after a quick victory parade in Paris, that would teach the French for what Napoleon had done to Berlin, the Prussians, now Germans, departed. They took with them Alsace-Lorraine, huge reparations, and a level of French revanchist rage that would in due course be slaked, again at Versailles, in 1919. Alas, only stoking new German resentments. If only one feels Europeans could find their way to some different political dispensation which would put an end to this futile round of mutual humiliation and destruction. With the Germans gone, the intra-French recriminations started. Revolutionary forces accused the government that had negotiated France's surrender of betrayal and took over Paris. The Commune, Flying the red flag of revolution was nothing if not idealistic, egalitarian to the point of anarchy. It briefly pioneered compulsory free schooling, women's rights, and workers' ownership of enterprises. It was also vicious and ruthless, summarily executing its opponents. A favour soon reciprocated by government troops when they took back control after only two months in an orgy of destruction and bloodletting. Politically, France was an unhappy and polarised nation. The Third Republic lasted 70 years until 1940, but with 103 cabinets with an average life of eight months. The birth pangs of the German Empire were also, of course, felt acutely in Austria. Excluded from German affairs and in danger of disintegrating, the Austrian Empire now underwent a dramatic metamorphosis. Placating the dissident Hungarians by converting itself in 1867 into the Austro-Hungarian Empire. The new design was a union of co-equals. On the one hand, the Austrian Empire, reduced to the western and northern parts of the Habsburg domains, so including Bohemia, and on the other, the Kingdom of Hungary, incorporating an autonomous Croatia. 
Hungary got back its own government and parliament. The two halves shared a common monarch, Franz Josef, foreign affairs, defence and trade. They shared a customs union, were handled jointly. Josef Roth's novel, The Radetzky March, portrays the Austrian-Hungarian Empire as a creaking anachronism, blundering its way towards overdue demise in the cataclysm of the First World War. And an air of fin de siècle certainly hangs over the whole enterprise, reinforced by the series of personal tragedies that poor old Franz Josef had to endure during his almost 60-year reign. He died in 1916. Uh, The execution of his brother Maximilian in Mexico in 1867, after a botched neo-colonial adventure. The double suicide of his son and heir Rudolf and his mistress at Merling in 1889. The assassination of his wife Cici, dashing horsewoman, fashion plate, particular favourite of the Hungarians, by an Italian anarchist in 1898. And finally, of course, the assassination of his nephew and heir, Franz Ferdinand, in Sarajevo in 1914. Yet, doomed though it might be, the Austro-Hungarian Empire at least brought Central and Eastern Europe a further half-century of relative peace and stability despite the mounting political tensions created by unprecedented economic change and surging nationalisms. Bismarck, too, saw it as a time to re-establish peace and stability across the continent, now that his great project of German unification was achieved. So in 1873, he engineered the League of Three Emperors, German, Russian and Austro-Hungarian. A quarter of a century on from the year of revolutions, And after the series of short, sharp wars which had culminated in the creation of Germany and Italy as nation-states, the new alliance was essentially a pact to reassert authoritarian government and to resist such pernicious and destabilising ideas as uh, liberalism and socialism. If measured by the absence of major war in Europe over the next four decades, the plan worked. But tensions were rising beneath the surface, which would make the status quo ever more vulnerable to the impact of events and of new personalities, as we shall see in our next and final episode.